You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the way that you pour out generously your rich gifts of grace on us in Christ. We pray now that you would pour out the grace of your Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would not be those who look at your word and walk away unchanged, but that we would be those who respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you have been with us this fall, you'll know that we have been looking at these great stories from 1 and 2 Samuel. Let me just catch you up a little bit as we near the end of this series. Uh, two weeks ago, we found David in a cave hiding on the run as a fugitive running from a murderous Saul trying to take him out. Well, a lot has transpired since then as we pick up David's story today. Uh, while David was in hiding, the Philistines, the arch nemesis of Israel, attacked Israel again. But this time, Saul and his armies could not hold them off. And 1 Samuel, if you go back and read that later, 1 Samuel ends very tragically with violence and war and bloodshed. Saul's Saul's son, Jonathan, is killed on the battlefield, and Saul himself takes his own life there on the battlefield. It's a very low moment for Israel. But it's also a God-ordained moment of transition, because with Saul dead, the way opens for David to become the king, and as 2 Samuel begins, David slowly begins to rebuild unity after a season of terrible division and conflict. And so all of that culminates right here in chapter 5, what we're about to read, as David becomes king over a united Israel, and Jerusalem is established as the capital of this new kingdom. So this is a story of building unity in our division It's a story about a king that unites. So we're going to hear Frank Faust read uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to to bring your Bibles, to pull them out, have them open, because I'm going to be referring back to chapters 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel. Um, There's there's Bible there in the pew if if you'd like to do that as well. So let's hear God's word as Frank reads. This morning's scripture is from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought David could not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. 
On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind, who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up an area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted him, his kingdom, for the sake of his people Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the last month or so, I've had lunch with several pastors, several other pastors in the Richmond area, something that I like to do. And um, there's not much in common between these three pastors that I've had lunch with. Um, there's not much in common between their churches. They're different denominations, different, kind, different sizes of congregations, different, different worship styles. Actually, these pastors don't even know each other. But one thing I found to be pretty surprising that was in common between all, all of these pastors, as I met with them, is that in the last 18 months, we've each had significant levels of conflict in our congregations. Tensions have increased and people have left our churches. Now, what's interesting about this is you might ask why. In not a single case, uh, there was no change to these pastors' doctrinal views, no change to their understanding of the authority of Scripture, uh, no change to their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity or the supremacy of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In no case, there was any moral or sexual failure. In no case, there was uh, fiscal malfeasance. So what was the reason? Well, I'll tell you the reason. The last 18 months that we've experienced a terrible global pandemic, that we've experienced a bitterly polarizing and divisive presidential election, that we've experienced the worst racial unrest since the 1960s, that we've experienced economic insecurity. All of this has put extraordinary strain on the unity of the churches. It has become, frankly, more difficult for Christians to get along. <laughs> Extraordinarily difficult. Jesus longs for his people to be unified. One of the last things that Jesus prayed for before he was arrested and crucified was, Father, may they be one as you are in me and I am in you. May they be one. Jesus lived for it. He died for it. He rose for it. Jesus actually says, the successful mission of his global gospel depends on the unity of the church, and yet it's so hard. It's so challenging. There is so much in the world and in our lives and in our hearts that undermines unity in God's church. And so what do we do in the face of such conflict and division? Well, our passage this morning offers some really surprising wisdom it shows us this, that in the face of all that divides us, we find unity not in common backgrounds or common preferences or common ideas or ideologies, but we find unity in submission to a common king, in submission to a common king. 
So let's look at what David does, because after 20 years of conflict and division, David begins to labor for unity, and we can learn from what he does. So we're going to look first at how he laments what is lost, second, how he repairs what is broken, and third, how he unites around a new center. So first, lament what is lost. Something surprising happens in the beginning of 2 Samuel, because for a long time, David has been the target of Saul's hatred and contempt. Uh, He has driven him into the wilderness. He's thrown spears at him. He's hunted David down like an animal. It is not an exaggeration to say that Saul is David's worst enemy. And so you'd think, wouldn't you, that when Saul is finally dead and David can finally stop living in caves and he can finally begin to move towards the throne, you'd think that David would be elated. Wouldn't you? I would be. But what's interesting is that instead, something very surprising happens. That in chapter 1, if you look in your Bibles at 2 Samuel chapter 1, when David gets the news that Saul is dead, instead of rejoicing, instead of rushing to grab the throne, the very first thing that David does is lament, grieve, name this great loss for his people. He cries out. At the end of chapter one, there's this powerful and passionate lamentation from David over all that has been lost in Israel. He says this, your glory, O Israel, is slain on the high places. How the mighty have fallen. And so before a new beginning, David makes space to lament what is lost. Y'all, if you study healing from trauma, or if you're a person that has endured trauma yourself and has tried to receive healing from it, you'll know that when someone experiences something traumatic, the tendency is always to stuff it and to suppress it and to ignore it and to not give it any attention. But any good therapist will tell you that to ignore trauma and to stuff the pain is to actually give it greater power and to multiply its harm. And so the surprising thing is that by naming it and grieving it, and allowing yourself to experience the emotion of it, you actually dismantle its power and create space to begin to heal. And that's the surprising first step that David takes towards building unity. He names and laments what has been lost. I think that this may be a first and very healthy step towards unity for us to name and lament what is lost. You know, the reason, I'm just gonna speak real frank with y'all because I love you. The, the, the reason why I am being so open with you right now about the conflict that we've had as a church, uh, the people that have left the church, the disagreements that we've had, the impact that it's having in our congregation, is because it's very important that we name these things and not just act like everything is great and fine. Right? Um, if you're in a family and something really difficult happens, the worst thing you can do is not talk about it and not acknowledge it. Some of you were raised in families like that, and, and you know how harmful it can be. So we are a family, and we've been through a lot together these last 18 months. We've been through some really challenging times, and some hard decisions have had to be made. And at every turn, our session, our elders, our pastors have sought to submit to the authority of Scripture, be guided by the Holy Spirit, and be centered on the gospel to make challenging decisions in the face of all that's happened. And these decisions have been made, and they've been hard at times. We made the decision to take the pandemic really seriously and to keep our community safe through policies that prioritize protecting our most 
vulnerable members, and that was a hard decision. We made the decision to address racial injustice as a gospel issue and to talk about our own responsibility as a majority white congregation to address the racial harms that endure in our city and land. And that is a hard decision. We made the decision during last year's election to critique both political parties and to reject the idea that any one political party can represent the voice of Christians. That's a hard decision. And these decisions have not been easy, and they have resulted in conflict and disagreement, and people have walked away. And so, you know what? Even as we stand behind decisions that we've made, it still really hurts. It's still really sad. And it's sad when people that we love and people that we care about choose to walk away from fellowship. My own heart is broken, and I believe that the heart of Jesus is broken too. And it is good and healthy for us to name that and to grieve it. So we lament. And we lament not just for our own losses. We lament for, for the whole big C church that is fractured into pieces. We is divided theologically, denominationally, racially, socioeconomically, and after the last two years is deeply divided ideologically like never before. The prayer of Jesus goes unanswered. And all creation waits for the sons of God and daughters of God to be reconciled and revealed. So David's story, you see, teaches us that unity isn't found by glossing over the truth and rushing forward to some future hope that we think will be better. It's not found by pretending that things are fine when they are not fine. This is not a kumbaya unity that is achieved by holding hands and singing around a fire. No, David begins by telling the truth about the pain. He grieves the death and division that the kingdom has experienced. He begins with lamentation, and in doing so, he opens space for healing. He opens space for God to come into those places of loss and to give him space to do his work. Where loss is grieved, newness can flow. That's what David did, and we can do it too. We don't have to be fake. We lament what's lost. The second thing that David does is he repairs what is broken. He repairs what is broken. Let me just give you a quick little summary of what happens in chapters one through four. After Saul is killed, David goes down and he makes his home in Hebron, which is a little city in the tribe of Judah. And Judah makes David king over this little tribe, this one southern tribe of Judah. Now, all the other 11 northern tribes of Israel remain under the rule of Saul's family, one of Saul's sons, a guy named Ishbosheth. Now, various conflicts break out between the houses of Saul and the house of David in chapters two through four. But gradually, David's kingdom uh, gets stronger and stronger, and Saul's house gets weaker and weaker, and more and more people begin defecting and aligning with David until it's clear that he has the support to be the united king of Israel. Now, in ancient times, it was a very common practice for a new king to literally eliminate murder anyone that has any connection with the previous regime. This is like true, literal cutthroat politics. Um, so you don't want any potential rivals potentially rising up to undermine the new throne. This is what people did back then. But as David moved to the throne, he does something highly unusual. Instead of hunting down and eradicating his potential rivals, note, as Saul had done to him, 
David seeks to repair relationships with those he separated from. So if you look in chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6, David reaches out to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to honor their devotion to Saul. Remember, these are the men who, was, who were trying to kill David. David now seeks to bless them instead. In chapter 3, there's a guy named Abner. Abner, he's the leader of Saul's army. This guy had been responsible for hunting David down in the caves. And David, instead of destroying the man who had sought to destroy him, David meets with Abner, prepares a feast for him and his men, and makes with him an agreement of peace. Now, just how extraordinary this is gets highlighted by what happens next, because there's another guy named Joab. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you. Abner is the leader of Saul's army. Joab is the leader of David's army. Joab hates Abner. They are arch enemies. And so when Joab finds out that David, his boss, has made peace with his arch nemesis, Abner, he is infuriated. He can't believe it. And so do you know what he does? You know what he does? He calls up, Joab calls up Abner, acts like everything's cool. He's like, hey man, I heard we're on the same team now. Why don't we meet up for a coffee? So Abner shows up. Guess what Joab does? Kills him. Whoa. See, these kids know what's up. So there's a contrast, right? Joab pursues peace by eliminating his enemies. David pursues peace by turning his enemies into friends. David prepares a feast for Abner and his men, while Joab rather just see him get killed. Rather than consolidate his power and eradicate those who were formerly against him, David seeks to make covenants with those he's separated from, repair relationships that have been broken, and create new pathways of peace. Y'all, this is astonishing and countercultural in that ancient world, and dare I say, it's pretty countercultural in our world today. You know, the Pew Research Forum has been doing research on polarization in American culture for many years, and they have found that currently our mutual contempt for one another as Americans is at an all-time high with over 90% of Republicans and 86% of Democrats holding an unfavorable or very unfavorable views of the other party, which is triple the percentage from just one generation ago. It also found that 20% of Democrats and 15% of Republicans reported thinking, quote, the country would be better off if large numbers of members of the other party just simply died. Now, that's jarring. And you know what that is? That's the Joab. That's, that's the Joab spirit right there. Our country has been enslaved by the spirit of Joab that would rather banish and wish death on opponents rather than be reconciled to them. Our tribal warfare is worse than ever. And what's extraordinary about David is that in a culture where the expectation was tribal warfare and literal cutthroat politics, he prioritizes repairing relationships and building unity. This is the guy. He was so captured by this vision. He wrote Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Is it this important to us? Is unity that important to us that we would be willing to swim hard against the stream that is around us? Is it more important to us than being right, more important than the political party of your preference winning the next election? 
Is it more important? Have you committed to praying for it, working for it, laboring for unity in a sustained and regular way? The word devil, it comes from the Greek word diabolos. Etymologically, it literally means to throw through. Dea, throw, bolos, uh, through, and bolos, throw. It's like the, the image is like of, of an axe head being thrown through a piece of wood to split it clean. The devil is the splitter. He is dead set on splitting everything apart that was meant to be together. Families, marriages, communities. And I tell you what, if Jesus said that his global mission depends on the unity of his people, you can be darn certain that the devil's coming after us. The devil loves tribal warfare among the people of God. He is cheering on all sides. He doesn't care who wins just as long as the cannons are blasting. And this is why Paul urges us, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Y'all, if you have to maintain something, you gotta work at it. That means there's a whole lot resisting it. You know, I heard a preacher say this. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, friends, but you don't have to work hard to maintain weeds. Have you ever noticed that? It's never too hot for weeds. It's never too cold for weeds. It's never too wet for weeds. It's never too dry for weeds. There are no conditions in which weeds do not thrive. There is no need to maintain them. But if you want a nice lawn or a happy garden, or even if you just want a plain old plot of dirt and to keep it as dirt, you've got to maintain it. You've got to work on it. You've got to be on the ball. You've got to go hard after it. And when it comes to unity, you can't coast. The splitter is out there. God's people are those who are called to maintain, to repair what's broken, to partic- you can't, you've got to participate in it. You can't assume that it's someone else's job to obey the word of Jesus, to swiftly and lovingly reconcile with those you are separated from, to assume the best, to bear with one another in love, to refuse gossip and slander, to seek peace in a culture of contempt that sees those who disagree with you as worthless and worthy of death. God calls us to a new way, a way of radical love, to go hard after unity is the highest priority of Jesus. So he laments what's lost, he repairs what's broken, and finally we see David gather around a new center. Everything comes together in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, you know what, we've been separated in our own distinct tribes, but we want to acknowledge We are your own flesh and blood, they say. All the tribes come together around a new common king. They anoint him there at Hebron and Judah, and they make him king of all Israel. And what David does next is really interesting. David decides to go up and conquer Jerusalem. Now, there's an odd little bit here in verses 6 and 8 that are very difficult for any translator or commentator to really understand. There seems to be some sort of ancient pejorative insult going on here. The Jebusites are taunting David by saying even the blind and lame could beat him. David is turning the Jebusite taunts back on them as he captures the city. He's not, David doesn't hate the blind and lame as evidenced by our passage last week with Mephibosheth. The really interesting thing about what's going on here is why David took Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city in the center of the north-south axis between the southern and northern tribes. David Uh, chooses a place that does not belong to any tribal territory. He decides to consolidate the monarchy 
not in Hebron, where he was, but in a new capital that would not give any one tribe special superiority over any other. This is similar to the logic that led to the creation of Washington, D.C. as our nation's capital, not part of any proximate state, taxation without representation, maybe. That's if you ever live in D.C., that's what that's about. Here's why this is significant. One of the ways that we often seek unity in the church is through assimilation, which basically is the idea that we try to make the others like us, to be in agreement with us. And in David's story, it's remarkable that he does not do away with tribal distinctions. Judah is still Judah, right? Benjamin is still Benjamin. The tribes don't stop being tribes. They still have all their own local customs and cultures and practices and most assuredly continue to have squabbles and disagreements. And yet in their diversity, they have a new center in this new common king and in this new common kingdom. What now unites them is not their local agendas and tribal loyalties, but fidelity to a new king and a new kingdom. Biblical unity, friends, is not uniformity. It is not sameness. It does not mean a community where everybody is alike and everybody is the same and everyone is in agreement about everything. The biblical vision of unity is harmony in diversity, oneness in differentiation. The vision that the church holds out in the New Testament is that it would be a place where people of different genders and classes and races and cultures and income levels and, dare I say, even opinions can come together functioning harmoniously as one because our new identity is not in any one of those other factors, but is in our new identity as common citizens to a new king, Jesus the Lord. What does this mean for us, friends? It means that if we're gonna do this together and I wanna do this with you, we gotta make Jesus the king, the bedrock foundation of our identity more than anything else that our citizenship in his kingdom is higher than any other citizenship that we are a part of. In a world of identity politics and polarization and cancel culture, it is so easy to think of yourself as defined by all of the identity categories out there right now, right and left, liberal and conservative, Republican or Democrat, pro-vax or anti-vax. We put ourselves in these groups and we define others in the same way. But you know what? When Jesus gathered his 12 disciples, he chose among them Simon the Zealot, a radical conservative looking to overthrow the government, and he also chose Matthew the tax collector, a social liberal working for the state. One was watching CNN, one was watching Fox News. Apart from Jesus, these guys would have hated each other. They never would have been a part of the same community. But in and with Jesus, there is a new, deeper foundation that transcends anything else that is more central to who they are, that they belong to Jesus, the king. Can we do that? Can we commit that our citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus transcends all other loyalties and identities? That when you find yourself separating and pulling back and judging and condemning and snubbing and needing to grind your ax, ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? Am I not a person made and bear the image of God? Am I not a sinner for whom Christ died? Am I not a citizen in the kingdom of Jesus? And who is he who I hate? 
Is he not one who bears the image of God? Is he not one sinner for whom Christ died? Is he not through Christ a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus? Are they not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? We unite around a new center. So here is just, I was not expecting to find this in 2 Samuel, but here is the surprising wisdom we find in David's approach to his kingship, how he seeks to unite. He laments what is lost, he repairs what is broken, and he unites around a new center. You know, there are so many calls for unity these days. You hear it all the time, inside the church, outside the church. Sometimes the answer people say is more tolerance, more acceptance. Sometimes people say it's more education. If we could just get the right information into people, then we would all get along. But y'all, the gospel has a deeper, far more radical approach. Because the gospel says we are so turned in upon ourselves, so poisoned by sin and pride, that contempt, racism, ethnocentrism, hatred, self-preservation, and stubborn self-seeking pride are hardwired in to me and into you and into us. Which means conflict and disunity is never merely a social problem, it is a spiritual problem. And so what unity first requires is not tolerance, not education or hard work. What it first requires is rescue. The rescue of God through Christ by grace. We need God to do in us and for us what we cannot do in and for ourselves. Unity is a gift of grace and this is what God has done for us in Christ. Through his death, he has accomplished unity. He has torn down the barrier that separated us from God and that separated us from each other. He has created a new community grounded in grace alone. And now Paul says, maintain it, preserve it, guard it. Guard the gift that's already been given. Protect it, fight it, do everything for it. Give your life for it as Jesus has given his own for us. Let me close uh, with a story I heard this week. 20 years ago, there was a Mardi Gras celebration in downtown Seattle. And unfortunately, throughout the night, a mob ensued and a woman was attacked. And a young man named Chris Kime saw this woman being attacked and he ran to help her and the mob turned on her, began to beat him, and he died there in the streets of Seattle. And it was captured on video. Another man in Rick's, named Rick Allison saw it on the news that night, and he was heartbroken for that young man and his family, and Rick himself was dying of pulmonary fibrosis. Well, two hours after he saw that on local news, the phone rang, and it was the hospital saying they had a set of lungs for him. And guess whose lungs they were? Chris Kimes. Another man was in Seattle at the time named Larry Levinson, and he too was watching Chris get beaten on TV from his own hospital room. He had about two or three days left to live because of his failing heart. A couple hours later, next thing he knew, Larry was getting Chris's heart. Turns out Chris was an organ donor and that five people all over Seattle received his organs that night. Later on, uh, Chris's mother found out who the names of those five strangers were who had gotten her son's organs and she invited them all over to their family home for a feast. And Chris's sister, she was going around introducing them to each other. She didn't use their names. She said, this is pancreas, this is lungs, this is right kidney, this is left kidney, this is heart. And Chris's mother uh, put her ear up to Larry's chest to hear the beating heart of her boy. 
They did not know each other. They were total strangers with different stories, different backgrounds, and yet they came together to remember that though this young man died tragically at the hands of a mob, he brought them together and he had given them life. We are a group of people of all different stories and all different backgrounds and all different opinions, and yet we were dead in our sin. Jesus' own death at the hands of a mob rescued us, united us, and made us one body. This is a king who did not just set a table for his enemies, but died for his enemies, gave his own life and body for his enemies to create a new community of grace. We have what we need. We have all the resources we need, not in us, but in our king. So let's look to him. Would you pray with me? God, we repent of the ways that we are shaped more by our citizenship in the world rather than by the citizenship in Jesus and his kingdom. We pray that you would unite us in Christ and give us power from the Holy Spirit to strive to maintain it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.